The word of God from Mark chapter 12, verses 13 to 17. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one, and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Altogether, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If you would uh, remain standing. Um, let's come at this time to prayer. Heavenly Father, we worship you, and we receive your word, and we ask by your spirit that you would uh, illumine your word, soften our hearts, transform us. Lord, uh, I just come fast. We're inclined to just um, to zone out, but we just, we beg you uh, that according to your steadfast love and kindness, that you would be with us in a special way, that we'd give heed to your word. We love you, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So um, if you're a visitor, we're really glad you're here. What a Sunday. And I'm not even trying to be cool. Like, I wear a sports coat normally, but I'm like, cool guy, pastor, untucked shirt today. Uh, That's me trying too hard, but I'm also just really hot. Uh, So sorry that it's so hot in the cafetorium, but here we are. Um, We're really glad that you're here. Also, we do have Bibles for you um, because we're going to dig into the Word, and we're going to want you to love God's Word and give careful attention to it. So, but let me, um, let me begin by warning you. We're going to talk about a topic that kind of gets our blood boiling, uh, as if it's not hot enough in here. Uh, Jesus is going to meddle with our politics this morning. You know, it's not a topic that, you know, Denver Prez, we talk about every Sunday or anything like that. But we are in a sermon series on Mark. We've been in Mark for several months now, and we've just taken the next passage in chapter 12. And I think this passage that we just heard just deals with it, like, directly. Um, You know, as you guys, you know, have probably noticed in your life before, people are inclined to use the Bible to confirm what they already believe before they even study a passage, right? And that's what we do with the Bible. So what I want to do is introduce the text that we just heard with a few stories that are going to help us understand the difficulty of studying God and politics. You know, um, I've shared this before, but whenever I'm, uh, you know, sharing my faith or, uh, you know, uh, trying to help someone know Jesus and his teachings, uh, one of the first questions or maybe issues with conversion that I encounter really has nothing to do with Jesus. The question that people often have is something like this. If I become a Christian, 
Does that mean I have to become a Republican? Uh, And of course we say, no, like, of course not. Don't be gross. Of course not. That will naturally happen with discipleship, (laughs) right? Or we say that in our heart. I mean, we don't say that because we're not that tacky, but that's what's going on inside, right? Uh, we, We moralize our political party. And it's not just Republicans, right? Uh, it, you know, Democrats also moralize their political view. For instance, I was uh, speaking to a woman. This is back when I lived in Puerto Rico, and I was in an area called Condado. Condado is like a really hip, progressive area. It'd be like San Francisco, right? Kind of imagine, or just Denver. I, why, why think about, you know, San Francisco, Denver, right? And um, so she's very progressive. She is a small business owner. And she's, there was a new set of like uh, taxation, tax laws that had been passed and it was kind of hurting small business or at least small business owners were carrying the brunt of it. And she was lamenting all of these new taxes. And I, I mean, she doesn't really know me. I'm just listening to her, you know, just being a compassionate listener. And she stops mid rant to apologize to me if her complaints made her sound like a Republican. Like she's asking for, for, for my forgiveness. And she clarifies that she's a Democrat. And do you know why she felt compelled to clarify that she's a Democrat? Uh, It's because in her community, you will absolutely get judged if you even smell a little bit like a conservative, right? So they're just as fundamentalist, right, in their community. It's the same. It's literally the same script. Uh, You know, our... The current presidential scenario for the last couple rounds here has made political affiliation very touchy. Um, and, and honestly, we all tend to humanize the position of the perspective that, we, that, that agrees with our interests. Um, I could remember, this was years ago now, at the Gospel Coalition, there was like this panel of uh, black pastors and white pastors Uh, And these are all pastors who have the same theological framework, okay? They're all the same. And they're discussing the political divide between white and black evangelicals. And so one side was explaining why Christians ought to vote a certain way. And they're, you know, they clarify that, that it was a hard decision. But, you know, the Supreme Court justices, right? The Supreme Court nominations and so forth. And, And while that... Uh, the other side began to explain why it was almost impossible for blacks to vote for that candidate. And so one of the older white pastors lamented the intense moral decay of our culture. And he says, it's not, it's not like the good old days, like in the 40s and 50s, when Christian ethics were predominant and, and touched both parties. And at that moment, like a, the black pastors like stops them. And he pipes up and he says, brother, you are romanticizing a time when blacks were politically second-class citizens with few rights. Those were not the good old days for my people. Things are a mess now, but I have less fear that my children are going to get wrongly pulled over than, than, than my grandparents did. I will take today's culture over that culture anytime. Do you see the difficulty with all of this? Are y'all feeling it? We see all of our politics through cultural lenses and hidden interests. I have dear friends 
who are from French-speaking Canada. They actually worshiped with us a few weeks ago. Um, these are like the noblest, most sincere Christians I know. Uh, where they live, it is very hard to be a Christian. Very few Christians. And they are incredibly faithful. Uh, and let me just say, like, these are extremely conservative people. Like, their church has, like, ties to, like, D.A. Carson and John MacArthur. I mean, are y'all following me here? Like, this is, like, very, you know, all right, conservative, right? So they had to move to the United States for work. And it was really difficult for them to see how Christians would not desire universal health care. For them, socialized healthcare was a moral issue for Christians. I don't even know what you do with that. You see what I'm saying? Like you can see how culture informs this. So much of our, of our politics is socialized by our national mythology, by our regional mythologies. Now listen, Jesus is not unaware of this phenomena. In fact, Jesus doesn't even say avoid politics. He does not separate faith and politics. Jesus actually doubles down and surprises everyone. We are incurably political creatures, even if we don't try. Um, so Jesus is going to sow seeds of political revolution that are far deeper than we can imagine. So this morning, that was a big introduction. We're going to study this passage about Jesus saying, render to Caesar what is Caesar, right? Um, and because it's so uh, familiar, like we've heard this passage a lot, it's kind of easy to kind of blow it, blow by it quickly. But this morning, we're going to peek under the surface. We're going to try to study it a little more deeper. And there's kind of two headings that we're going to use for you note takers. And I know there's three of you. Meg Brown's one of them. Got you, girl. Here are your two headings for today's sermon. We're going to look at Jesus's social game plan. And then we're going to look at Jesus's political game plan. So that's our outline. With that, let's begin with his social game plan. And I want to start with the very last verse. You'll see there, verse 17, where it says, Jesus says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And then look at the very last few words, and they marveled at him. You see that? Now, if you and I are honest, we don't know why those last few words are there. They, like, they marveled at him after he says that. What was so amazing about Jesus' response that they marveled? I mean, we get it, right? Jesus is clever, right? Is that right? Well, this is going to require um, a lot of explaining because what Jesus is doing is totally off the map. And if we could understand it, I think we'd marvel too. So that's what I want to do. What's going on here? Everyone uh, put on your thinking caps because I'm going to do a little bit of explaining here. And if I say something that's helpful to you today, I probably learned it from like Ed Clowney or Tim Keller or Larry Hurtado or commentary. So I just want to give credit to those guys. That's where I, they were really helpful for this. All right, so here, here we are. Here's the context. 25 years prior to Jesus, Rome officially takes over the southern kingdom, the land of Judah. And they institute a governor. And this governor is a relative of Herod the Great, right? And this new Herod 
apparently has a little bit of Jewish blood in him. Like it's in his, in his family line. And so Rome, by instituting, thought that this new governor could keep the Jews quiet, right? But this governor, he's just a puppet. Now this governor still answers to Caesar and they will pay taxes. Now listen, taxes in every culture is uh, a touchy subject. Nobody likes taxes. But at this time... At this point, about 6 AD, they institute a head tax. Now, what's a head tax? Well, everyone understands like taxes on commerce or taxes on land, but this was a tax simply for being under the rule of Caesar. Now, this tax was not a lot of money, but it was highly symbolic. It shows who you belong to. So for a Jew whose emperor is a pagan, this is infuriating. Now, in that year, there's a pseudo-messiah. His name is Judas the Galilean, and he begins a revolt. This guy told all the Jews to refuse to pay the head tax. He cleans out the temple, gets rid of all the Gentiles, and he insisted that in this way, the God of Israel, the one true God, would bring his kingdom. Fast forward, that rebellion was crushed, and yet there was still this residual disdain over this head tax, right? So in our passage, verse 13, it picks up. There are these two groups who have a vested interest in this conversation, and they're the ones who draw near to Jesus. Look at verse 13, right? It says, the Pharisees and the Herodians come together to set a trap. Now, this is interesting, you guys, because Pharisees are like, they're like the local leaders of the Jewish people. Like, they're the conservatives. They're the ones who are worried about the social decay of their culture. They're afraid of secularization. Uh, they're the ones who wanted to create an alternative culture, uh, they wanted, you know, their own coffee shops and their own clothing lines, right? They wanted to completely separate themselves with their holy huddles. They had the sort of uh, fortress mentality. And then you have the Herodians. And these guys are the progressives. They are the ones who are like, we need to get with the times. Rome is good for us. We can trust the government, right? They're the ones who are like, hey, let's quit fighting and let's assimilate into Roman culture. And Rome had a lot of benefits. Uh, they thought that the old world was oppressive and that they wanted to be on the right side of history. Does that sound familiar, anyone? Right? Um, they had the sort of embrace and assimilate mentality. So these two groups thought of the head tax very differently, and yet they're working together to set a trap. Now listen, both the progressives and the conservatives wanted to get rid of Jesus. So what's the trap that they're setting? Well, you can see there in verse 14, they get real chummy, right? They get real chummy with Jesus. Jesus sees right through this, and they ask, in the second part of verse 14, Jesus, teacher, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? 
Now, you see what these jokers are trying to do. They're trying to expose Jesus and get him hung. They're trying to get him in trouble. And, and here's how. See, if Jesus says, yeah, pay the tax, then he's going to lose the people. Because paying the tax would show moral laxity. The coins actually promote like emperor worship. It means that they're giving up, that they're allowing a pagan to control the land that belongs to the God of Israel, right? But on the other hand, if Jesus says, don't pay the tax, he's going to get in trouble with the emperor, with the government, because he will be outed as another zealot, just like Judas the Galilean. But either way, this seems like the perfect opportunity for these two groups to get rid of Jesus. Now, the author, John Mark, he tells this story because it's like brimming with irony. Both sides with opposite social values are equally against the Lord. Like, it reminds me of that. Do y'all remember that story in Joshua 5? Israel's preparing to go uh, to fight up against Jericho. And um, Joshua has this incredible encounter with, with um, this powerful angel of the Lord. He's like the commander of like the angels of the Lord, right? And Joshua thinks, man, this would be great to have this guy on my team, right? That'd be great. So Joshua asks him to make sure. He says, are you for us or are you for our enemies? You all remember the story? And the angel replies, neither. Like as if to say like, what audacity. God is not here to baptize your agenda or to baptize your team. The Lord is on the Lord's team. He does not hop onto our team. Rather, we leave our team and join him, you see. So what Jesus is doing is something similar, and it's truly subversive. He understands that the tribes that we form take on their own agenda. And that agenda does not correspond one for one with the kingdom of God. It doesn't. On one side, the people wanted to respond to the empire by separating, right, the Pharisees. They wanted to get off the grid. They wanted uh, their own holy huddle. They wanted self-protection. And in some cases, these guys were thinking about, you know, moving to Canada if their guy doesn't get in office. That's a joke, everyone. Canada didn't exist back then, but you'll see what I'm saying here, right? On the other side, there was this impulse to not resist at all, just assimilate, join the party. Uh, people who don't know God at all probably just got it right because of God's common grace, they assume. Just assimilate. Now, here's the irony. Both sides, both sides have their logic and have their moral reasoning. But the reasoning and moral logic is never employed to find truth. It is used to defend what they already believed before they began. It employs, it's employed to protect their hidden interests. That's how group affiliations work. And Jesus would have none of it. Jesus pushed up against both of these groups. And for this reason, both groups wanted to get rid of them. At best, at best, they wanted a watered-down, domesticated version of Jesus who could be like their team mascot. But listen to me. Jesus will not be trifled with. Listen, Christian. Listen. 
if your imagination of the kingdom of God looks exactly like your political group, you've been assimilated. Christians must always feel a little bit out of place. No group quite represents us, right? We must not turn a blind eye or negotiate or replace the kingdom of God with our tribe. When we leave our army to join God's, it's in those moments that you'll see that your old team was never on Jesus' side to begin with. The world is broken. Now, how do you know if you've been assimilated? How do you know? I suppose there's lots of ways to answer that question. Here's one way. You perhaps experience more anxiety, more anger, more strong emotions by following the national news than you feel peace or trust or conviction upon reading God's word. What do you feel more of? You know, as faith dissipates in our culture, in our city, as religion is sort of pushed to the sides, it, it's, it's, it's creating a hole, but it's not staying in a vacuum. Politics is filling that religious hole. And so politics now takes on the same religious fervor and you feel it. And we're, we're more likely to evangelize our politics than Jesus. Listen, good news. Jesus will have his way. He's king. And he didn't come just to baptize our agendas. He came to rule us. And that's good news for us. So that's Jesus' social game plan. Like uh, when we evaluate our societal and social impulses, we see these groups to either separate or assimilate. And both groups want to get rid of Jesus in favor of protecting their hidden interests. And Jesus resists both sides. But Jesus also has a political game plan. This is point two. So let's get back to the text to see how. So these two groups, uh, the Pharisees and the Herodians, they asked Jesus if they should pay taxes to Caesar. Like, is it lawful? You see that in verse 14? Should we pay taxes? Now, when Jesus responds, he uses a different verb. He doesn't say, pay to Caesar what is Caesar and pay to God what is God, does he? So in the Greek, you can see that he actually uses a different and important word. And our English version renders it render. Render to Caesar. Render to God. Uh, now, this is an old word. We don't use it often um, in our daily conversations. Uh, but the, all the commentaries will tell you that the best way to translate the Greek is it's, render is like to pay back. Not just to pay, but to pay back. And this word is cryptic and subversive. So Jesus looks at a denarius. Look at verse 15 and 16. He looks at a denarius. He sees on that denarius the face of Tiberius. And he says, give him his money. Like his name is on it. His face is on it. Like it belongs to him. Now, by saying this, follow me here. Jesus is being super literal. Here's why. All the money in the Roman Empire belongs to the emperor, right? 
the money actually comes from the emperor's coffers. There is no like national mint. Don't, that's not how they did money back then, okay? All money is understood as being on loan to the subjects of Caesar, right? So Jesus says, sure, give it to him. It's his. But remember, Jesus uses the word render, <laughs> pay back. And Jesus does not say pay back money to Caesar. He says, pay back what is his. Pay him what he deserves. So what does a despot deserve? What does he deserve? Certainly not loyalty. A dictator deserves resistance. Jesus is giving Caesar his money, but he is refusing to give Caesar what he truly wants. Loyalty, allegiance. For that, we render to God what is God's. And that's why Jesus has them actually look at the, at the coin. A denarius has Caesar's image on it. So give it to him. But what has God's image on it? What has God's likeness? What? What is it? What has God's likeness on it? It's you. It's me. Then give yourself to God. Give your loyalty to God. Can you see how politically subversive this is? Jesus is not saying, hey, don't mix religion and politics. No, he is saying you are a political creature by definition. Live in this world subversively. Indeed, Jesus is interested in revolution. Jesus is interested in politics, but not in the way that you think. Jesus is not interested in taking the script of the oppressor and then using it against him. Jesus is not convinced that the kingdom of God comes through a series of successful political power plays. See, Judas the Galilean started a revolt using the same playbook, the script of power as, uh, uh, in dominance, just like Rome does, but he was crushed. And listen, no one would even know the name Judas the Galilean if it wasn't for Josephus the historian. No one would even know that name. He's crushed in history. But think about, also think about like Barabbas. You all remember that name? He was uh, the revolutionary that got traded for Jesus at the end. He also used the same script of power, the same one that the oppressors use. He tried to stir up a rebellion through power. But Pontius Pilate gladly, gladly traded Barabbas for Jesus. Why? Why was Jesus more dangerous than Barabbas? Because the playbook of Barabbas is power and domination and political maneuvering, and that can be squashed every single time. But Jesus uses a different script. And what script is it? Notice in verse 15, Jesus says, bring me a denarius. Like he literally doesn't have a denarius. What in the world? Like a denarius is a small amount of money. It's, it's like one day's wage for a blue collar worker in the ancient world. Jesus does not even have one denarius. And why is that so significant? Why does Mark include that here? All along, for, for chapters here, Jesus has been saying that the economics of the kingdom of God are different. Money, power, value, all of that is inverted in his kingdom. In the kingdom, and when I say kingdom, I'm talking about the place where Jesus is reigning. In that place, the last 
are first. And the greatest are the servants of all. The kingdom belongs to who? The poor in spirit. Rome can take away the money, even the life of Jesus. But that is a weak weapon against him. And in fact, Jesus would begin his revolution by dying on a cross. This would ignite the hearts and the loyalty of men and women everywhere. Indeed, the followers of Jesus would change the entire known world with that script. Dying, not political maneuvering, dying. That is a rebellion that you cannot squash with threats. See, listen, when our deepest hopes are tied to our political parties getting their way, then our revolution can be squashed. And, and, and by the way, your, your joy is quite fragile. Every four years, half of you are going to be super disappointed and depressed for a while. And it makes, us, it makes us anxious and it makes us cynical and alarmist and conspiracy theorist types. Why? Because we're fighting fire with fire. It's, it's the same playbook and it doesn't work. But what if, now think about this with me, Denver Press. What if every Christian truly followed in, in Jesus' footsteps? What if we double down politically? I mean, not, not opt out, but truly understand the political capital of walking with Christ. What if your life and your, your holiness and how you lean into the world and neighbor is actually profoundly political? I mean, what would that look like in us? Well, for faithful Christians, it might mean that we're more difficult to nail down like what political party we are. A little bit messier. We, um, we offer resistance to both sides, just like Jesus did. It means letting God's kingdom make a mess of everyone's politics and not turning a blind eye to any one side's weaknesses. Don't defend it. Either side. You just call it like it is, just like Jesus would. And listen, it's not, it's not like we're opting out. It's not like we just don't vote. You vote. Please vote. Do that. Vote. But hold your position more charitably and don't sell your souls to a party. Listen, politics or getting your guy in office cannot save you or fix this country. You know, some people feel more accomplished or feel like they've done more for their country when the candidate that they voted for won instead of when they share their faith with their neighbor. I don't even know what you do with that. And it's a lie. Our world will only meaningfully change when hearts and loyalties change. You need to take that to the bank. It's from salvation by politics and government to salvation by Jesus, the Lord, the Savior of all. He is the world's undemocratically non-elected rightful king, and he's ruling. See, we believe that. Like, I know y'all believe what I just said. You believe it, but you don't believe it. I mean, not in your guts. You know, I would ask you to make, ask, 
ask you to ask God to make you suspicious of where you find hope for tomorrow. Like ask him to make you suspicious of your own political affiliations that you would see clearly, even that color party that represents you. Make you suspicious of that. And to to make you more unabashedly pro-Christ and a dissenter in whatever you fall politically in a redemptive way. Let's create really meaningful gospel change that creates a revolution from the inside out. Like, let's make Denver, Colorado, like, deal with Jesus, and not because we wield power, but because we give up power, because we love, because we, we serve in ways that they have no explanation for, because we're generous in ways that they would never be, and it gets their attention. We don't fit their scripts of power. We're not anxious. We are non-anxious, non-cynical presence because we know that our guy is in office. <laughs> it's a throne. Okay, let me finish with one final thought. Thank you for your attention. This famous account of Jesus ends with the people marveling. Now, are we starting to understand why they marveled now? They're like, dang, right? His social and political game, his game plan was completely uncharted territory for them. Both sides wanted to get rid of Jesus. Jesus refused to play by their rules. And instead, he set into motion a revolution unseen in the history of the world. Jesus is inviting us, Denver Prez, modern Christians, he's inviting us into that revolution with tactics that reject power maneuvering and they replace it with dying for and serving the other. Some of you are a little bit suspicious. I mean, cute sermon, Ronnie, but can we really, can we really change the world like that? I mean, are, are you just being an idealist? Does it really work if we did it? If that's you, Ask yourself this, how did Christ conquer you? I mean, how did Christ subvert your former loyalties and replace it to loyalties to him? I mean, did he do it by force? No. While you were still his enemies, he died for you. He didn't dominate you. He purchased you with his own blood. That's actually the core message of the whole Bible. You can't even understand the Bible without understanding how he purchases purchases you with his own blood. God overcomes the world through reconciling blood of his own son. The innocent one dies for the many. That's incredible power. That is power. That's what we call irresistible grace. That's why that doctrine is so beautiful to us. It's like you didn't even have a chance. This is like enchanting beauty. Your loyalty to Jesus did not come by argumentation or posturing. It came by preeminent grace. 
Now let's take that script and advance the gospel revolution, the one that the whole world is hungering for. I mean, Denver is hungering for this. They don't even know it, and they, they need to hear this message. It's beautiful. Our neighbors are tired of the same bantering and posturing, but they are hungry for beauty and for the gospel. This is the revolution of redemption that will ensure that one day the whole world, not just our city, not just our country, but the whole world will be put to rights. Amen. Amen.